This is The Guardian. Today, the school concrete crisis. Is Britain falling apart? Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Let's just bring you some breaking news we have from the Department for Education. They have issued new guidance for schools. It wasn't quite the back-to-school energy that everyone was looking for. Um, now, this concrete is called reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, RAAC, and a number of... A brand new term and a whole new crisis for the Conservatives. There are concerns tonight that even more schools could contain dangerous concrete at risk of sudden collapse. Days before pupils were starting the autumn term, the Department of Education began calling schools to tell them to close. There was a real risk that a cheaper, bubbly kind of concrete called rack used in buildings across the country could put children in danger. After a particularly rainy summer, some classrooms faced collapse. Parents can be assured we're only talking about uh, a small number of schools, 156 that we've identified rack out of 22,500 schools. For Michael McCluskey, deputy CEO of the trust that runs School Be School in Scarborough, the new guidance came as a shock. School Be had already been making repairs. A good proportion of the school had been built with this concrete back in the 1940s. It's quite extensive. The older part of the building has got affected by rack. Surveyors have recommended that we cannot use the lower part of the building until the rack has been actually secured in the upper part of the building. And that involves around about 10 classrooms in the school, and it's significant classrooms because it's the science and design technology areas. Surveyors have actually said that there are some parts of the building, the upper part of the building, cannot be used ever again. So a couple of buildings, including the entire science block, are written off at the moment in terms of their use. Absolutely. Absolutely. Experts have warned that this is just the beginning. Could dangerous buildings across the country become a weight too big to bear for the government? From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, is confidence in Rishi Sunak crumbling amid the concrete crisis? Peter Walker, you're The Guardian's deputy political editor, and you've been following this story closely as it has unfolded over the last few weeks. Now, I'm sure that you, like everyone else, has suddenly become an expert on concrete. We're now about a week into the new school term, and this has moved very quickly from being an education crisis to a political one for the Conservative government. Peter, can you explain why? 
It's a political crisis because you basically had thousands of parents and children who literally days before the start of term were told that their kids might not be able to go into school at all, might only be able to go into school for some of the time, or might have to go into school that's being potentially propped up by beams, or even going into a school which has this concrete structure, which you know experts think should be safe, but you can't be quite sure. So it's this horrible combination of both inconvenience and this small risk, but still a risk of actual danger to kids. So there was the potential for hundreds of schools to face disruption, thousands of children and parents affected. It was literally deemed too dangerous for kids to go to school. Now, Gillian Keegan is the fifth education secretary we've had in the last year. How has she handled all of this? Um, I mean, it depends who you talk to. There is an argument, um, it remains to be seen, that she's probably in some ways handled it reasonably well. So when these new warnings, which allegedly took place literally in the last couple of weeks, that this rack concrete might be more dangerous than thought, when those reports came in, she acted very, very quickly. And it would have been politically convenient, possibly, to say, look, we're two days or three days away from the school term, let's not do anything. So she was very quick on that account, which hasn't really won her any credit, but in the grand scheme of things, might well have been the best thing to do. In terms of the optics and the PR, she's not exactly played a blinder. There have been some Tory MPs who've been grumbling about the fact she's got this very kind of confident, slightly bullish tone to her. She was a former very senior business person, and, and she's got that kind of business executive confidence to her, which in some ways is very good. But her mantra has been, you know, it's only been a small percentage of schools which are the trouble, which is perhaps not the right tone to take, because it's not really if you're saying to parents, you know, there's only a 1% chance your child might be squashed by a large concrete beam. That's not really what you want to be told. And she did go slightly off-piste with this TV interview a few days into it where she thought the camera was switched off and she loudly complained that no one else had got off their ass, and she wasn't being given the credit for what she'd done. Does anyone ever say, you know what, you've done a f- good job because everyone else has sat on their ass and done nothing? No, no, no signs of that, no? As you say, she was quick to act off the mark, but this situation didn't come out of nowhere. So I wonder how aware the current government was that this was something of a ticking time bomb. This is something that successive governments have known, even if it's not been on the kind of, you know, front of their thoughts for all that long. Because this type of uh, aerated uh, concrete had an original kind of deemed safe life of 30 years. You know, it can last much longer than that. It depends if you get any kind of water uh, into it. But a lot of these schools started to be built from the 50s onwards. They've gone way, way beyond that. And there has been this sense that a lot of them need to be completely rebuilt. The current crisis, such as it is, probably kicked off more in 2018 when the aerated concrete ceiling of a staff room of a primary school in Kent collapsed without any warning whatsoever. It was um, a Saturday, so there was no one in, which was pure chance. And Almost the thing with that is that when they examined the kind of concrete panelling from that, it looked like it was in very, very bad nick. But ever since then, that really focused a lot of minds and the government has been looking into it. But what has persuaded them they need to act very, very quickly was that there were three failures of concrete in kind of different places. One was a boarding school in Scotland and there were two other ones, not of all of them in like schools or uh, education places where in some cases the concrete had looked like it was fine. It had a lot more you know, years of life in it and it still collapsed or suddenly started to crack really, really badly. And so this 
idea of, well, hang on, if you've got concrete that where there's water ingress and it looks bad, you need to act, suddenly turned into any aerated concrete of this type over 30 years old could be trouble. And that's where things move very, very fast. How many schools are affected and how have the government communicated that message? Uh, the initial list they were, said there were 156 affected schools in uh, England, because obviously it's not only England which has these schools, but the Westminster government is responsible for education in England uh, only. And they said of those 156, um, slightly over 50 of them already had mitigations in place. For example, some classrooms not being used or support struts up and things like that. Um, the final list of schools that was published um, uh, a few days later was somewhere over 100 schools which you know need stuff done to them. The majority of those schools, all pupils are going in as normal, even not necessarily being able to use every part of the school. And of the rest of them, there's a mixture of uh, the term being put off for a week, um, a mixture of online um, and in-person learning or online learning. Michael McCluskey, can you tell me when you first became aware of RAC at your school? So, school's built in 1942, um, so clearly it was an old old building. The DFE had actually commissioned a questionnaire for schools to be completed by December last year, and there was no question that RAC was in the school. The DFE had recommended that you put structural posts in place to make sure that the school was supported. But there was no suggestion that the school was in any way dangerous. And then, literally days before the start of the new school year, the guidance changes and you suddenly discover that the rack in your school is now considered to be far more dangerous. What did you make of the speed and timing of the DfE's decision? So you can understand why ministers have made the decision because the ultimate thing, you know, is as a head teacher, as a school leader, you have to make sure that your building is safe. That that's absolutely paramount. It's something we didn't plan for. We planned for the school opening mm. in fourth of September. We still had mitigations in place. There was meant to be an ongoing program of uh, improvement, but everything has changed and. The impact on this has been significant because we have got a thousand kids that we have had to worry about what's the education provision going to be over the next uh, few weeks. So right now, you don't exactly know how lessons will pan out for the next few months. But in terms of the school itself, where parts of it, like the science block, are now condemned, do you think you'll get the budget to fix and rebuild? The DfE have been really supportive with this, you know, from from the start. The DfE are willing to fund the mitigation work that would help other parts of the school to, to, to open. They will fund temporary accommodation, but these areas need to be kitted out. And who's going to pay for that? It's not a simple process of saying we can take that type of furniture and put it into there. That's not going to happen. Um we actually submitted an application for a new build, ironically, at the same time as we completed the DFE's questionnaire. Now, it's, it's not a new thing. I mean, this, this school's been old. It's we, we spent a lot of money over the, say, the summer terms maintaining it. And I think that's actually bit as a bum a, a little bit. DFE surveyors come around, we make the application for a new build. 
and they're thinking this place is not crumbling. It's not got you know bricks falling off the wall. It's not because you've done a good job maintaining it. Exactly, but it's cost a lot of money. So the, the in twenty twenty we're having this conversation saying we we need a new school. So a whole new school, like completely newly built. Absolutely, knock it down because where, where it is, it's prime real estate. If you like, uh, we could sell that off, not a problem. But let's have a twenty first century experience for our kids. And the pandemic interrupted that conversation. But as this week has developed, we've had a tentative discussion with the department saying, do you now recognise that the school needs to be rebuilt? The word was yes, but we've not had any firm commitment to that yes. Many of us have only just heard about RAC, but it is by no means a new problem. It's been known about since the 90s. Bridget Phillipson, the Shadow Education Secretary, said this crisis stems from the Conservatives' decision in 2010 to axe the Building Schools for the Future programme. Now, this was a flagship scheme brought in by Tony Blair, spending tens of billions of pounds to build and fix schools across the country. Also, one of the first things the Conservatives scrapped when they came into power – What was the impact of that decision? Uh, Building schools for the future is an interesting one because this was one of the kind of Blair era's biggest vision things. And it wasn't necessarily directed to RAC. It was about replacing all these kind of schools that had been crumbling for years, which meant lots of kind of 80s and 90s kids went to school in kind of temporary cabins and things like that. Um, But it was having an impact. It was a massive infrastructure spend, which over time was due to get rid of and completely rebuild a lot of these kind of scrambling schools. Um, And in getting rid of it, it was partly the uh, austerity politics from 2010 onwards that even capital spending was massively cut back. It was also because the education priorities of the government then was firstly this process of the academisation of schools and then also the free schools programmes. They spent a lot more money basically helping new free schools be built than they did on actually replacing the existing structure of the schools. And overall, I mean, it's an austerity thing as much as anything, really. The total capital spend on schools since the pre-2010 era, I mean, it depends what metric you use, but it's fallen between about third and about 40%. And that is an awful lot. So new schools are being built, but not that many. They haven't been investing in our schools estate. And the reason that we're developing all of these problems is because of a consistent failure over the last 13 years. I think there can be no greater a defining image of the last 13 years of the Conservatives' education policy than children sat in classrooms with metal props, literally stopping the ceilings from falling in on their heads. Well, Labour have been very keen to tie this crisis directly to Rishi Sunak, particularly after it emerged in an interview um, that the former head of the Department of Education... Jonathan Slater, said that in 2021, when Sunak was Chancellor, he was warned of a critical risk to life because of the RAC issue. We saw the scale of the rebuilding programme that was needed. Three to 400 schools needed to be replaced per year. We got the funding to replace about 100 schools. And I was absolutely amazed. The actual decision that the Chancellor took in 21 was to half the size of the programme. Now, ministers, the Chancellor, of course, was at the time. Uh, Rishi Sunak. It doesn't look great for him. What's his response been? 
He's not really given any response um, in the sense that when he's been asked about it in TV clips and uh, in the uh, in the comments, he's kind of dodged the question a bit. Are you to blame for what's happening now? And do you want to apologise to parents and pupils? I think that is completely and utterly wrong. Actually, one of the first things I did as Chancellor in my first spending review in 2020 was to announce a new 10-year school rebuilding programme for 500 schools. Now, I mean, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one because obviously the metrics are really, really bad. But the weird thing is that as a Chancellor, he wasn't necessarily any better or worse than any other Chancellors of this post-2010 era. That Number 10 have pointed out several times that during that time, the average number of schools we built a year in England has been about 50-ish, which is what he said was about the right number. And also this stuff about there being, you know, a risk to children's lives was well known. There was a National Order Office report in June, which basically said this. So none of this information is necessarily novel or new, but portrayed in the way it is that you had you know, the most senior treasury minister, who was him at the time, being told, if you don't rebuild schools, if you don't stump up the cash, then there is a danger to children's lives. And they said, well, we're still not going to do it. And speaking to a few people in the kind of education world, they do say it's not Sunak necessarily, even though he, you know, is a bit like this, but there's this general kind of treasury mindset that they see education not as an investment, but as a kind of cost. And that has ended up being something which, you know, arguably has not saved any money in the long term. It's obvious the situation is quite desperate. And despite that, rebuilding schools hasn't been a major political talking point until now. It doesn't feel like it's seen as a campaign win. Peter, why is that? And what does it say about what makes an exciting policy promise versus a really necessary one? I guess there's a few things. The most kind of central one is the infrastructure spending is something that won't benefit voters probably till the existing government has already gone. I mean, if you say you're going to rebuild a school from the point of promise to the first kids walking in will probably be well over five years. And beyond that, there's this issue that British politics in particular in recent years, certainly since 2010, has had, which is this very strict adherence to kind of golden spending rules, um, into which a lot of governments have decided to include uh, infrastructure spending. So not just schools, but also things like, you know, transport, trains lines, you know, things like that. And we've had 13, nearly 14 years of this. And, you know, the repercussions of that are being seen now. And we've got crumbling schools, you know, train services don't necessarily work very well, uh, hospitals which are falling down. You know, if you really wanted to make the public sector work properly, you'd have to spend probably about 10 years spending an awful lot of money. And I don't think for Tories or even arguably for Labour, there's the political appetite to do that. So what is the government's big plan now? And what will it take to address the problem? How much could it cost? One price tag, you know, a very tentative price tag put forward so far is £150 million, which in the grand scheme of things in government spending isn't that much. But it depends, you know, how much further this rack problem goes. And you have to take into account the fact that RAC is merely the symptom of a wider problem. So, you know, as the rebuilding of schools program shows that even if you were to rebuild every school at danger for collapse from RAC, there's still hundreds and hundreds of others which are just crumbling. So, you know, it would go into the many billions. And again, it would take many, many years. And what have Labour said about how they would address the situation? Labour have been, I mean, for one very kind of politically obvious reason, just trying to, you know, attack the government and let 
the government take the flack for it. The truth is, this crisis is the inevitable result of 13 years of cutting corners, botched jobs, sticking plaster politics. It's the sort of thing you expect from cowboy builders saying that everyone else is wrong, everyone else is to blame, protesting they've done an effing good job, even if the ceiling falls in. The difference, Mr Speaker, is that in this case, the cowboys are running the country. They've been very, very cautious in what they say they do, which is part of, again, of this spending issue that even Labour doesn't want to commit to massive uh, infrastructure spending because they know then they'll be uh, attacked by the Conservatives and some papers for being, you know, willing to spend a bit too much. They've basically, in this case, tried to be almost as honest as they can be. The Labour education team has been saying, you know, we'd love to be able to, you know, fix all these schools as quickly as we can and we do what we, you know, possibly can. But it's going to be tricky, money is going to be tight. But they have certainly promised that they would do a lot more for this than the current government is. Coming up, why the concrete crisis isn't just affecting schools. Hello guys, this is Shante, the host of the Guardian's pop culture podcast. We're back for more. And listen, when it comes to pop culture, if you're talking about it, we've got it covered. As an extra treat for you, I'm going to be at the London Podcast Show in King's Place on Sunday the 17th of September with the expert matchmaker Paul C. Brunson. You know, our fave Married at First Sight expert. Do you want to find your perfect partner in life? Then you have to come and see us. Paul has all the tips and tricks. Get your tickets in person or go to kingsplace.co.uk forward slash pop culture. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Today in Focus. Peter, naturally the conversation is on schools right now as term is starting. But as you said, the rack problem isn't just confined there and it's a symptom of a wider problem. Can you tell me a bit more about what that means? There was the same concrete construction used in lots of other public buildings, anything from courts to theatres, NHS buildings, things like that. The difference is, is a lot of these buildings will have a dedicated facilities and buildings manager um, who will have you know, picked up on this and will have put mitigations in place. With hospitals in particular, there's been a lot more focus on this. So quite a few listeners will have been in uh, hospital buildings with these kind of metal struts, metal poles, keeping concrete ceilings up. But there's a lot of urgent surveys of public buildings going on and no one quite knows. Um, I think possibly the biggest crisis could be if the prison system is found to be riddled with this. Um, there's a lot of, you know, obviously hulking Victorian prisons, but quite a lot of prisons were built in this kind of 1960s, 70s era. Um, and someone in the prison world was saying to me that basically if you find a rack in just one wing of one prison, that is all the spare capacity for prisoners that there is in the entire country gone. And then if you find it in two wings, then there's suddenly not enough space for everyone. So that could be extremely bad, but as yet, no one quite knows. It's difficult not to feel quite grumpy when you're looking at the state of Britain and you feel like everything is crumbling. And this feels like another example where things are literally falling apart. You can imagine people across the country just wondering, well, what's next? I think for Rishi Sunak and his government, there is a real problem with this because um, you know, we have political scandals all the time, but the kind of rule of thumb is that the ones that stick, the ones that stick in voters' mind, tend to be of one of two types. One of which is the type of problem that directly affects people in their everyday lives. And the second one is something that's seen as symbolic or kind of emblematic of this malaise within the government. And this is both. You have thousands and thousands of students and parents around the country who can't get on with their everyday lives. And you, as you said, have this thing where the basic infrastructure of the country is in some cases literally falling down. And it goes back to the austerity choices of 2010 onwards, you know, which was politically expedient at the time, but it was always storing up a lot of problems. I mean, you had a lot of the um, austerity pain loaded onto uh, local councils. So now you have local councils which are going bust. So you know, this is almost part of a wider whole, but it's one that is really obvious and very easy to see. A council going bust is a kind of, you know, uh, slightly hard to conjure up, whereas you getting the call from your school two or three days before the school term starts saying you're going to have to change your entire life because the school building is no longer fit for purpose is something that really resonates. So in political terms, you know, there might be a way in which in a few months' time this is not seen as a crisis, but it's just yet another load on the weight of public opinion against Sunak and against the government. Michael, we've just heard about some of the political fallout of this issue and how it might be felt by voters. But what's the reaction to all of this disruption been like amongst parents at Schoolby School? Parents have been actually remarkably positive. There, there is a, a website, uh, a, a Facebook thing called Scarborough Moan. Now, I imagine that in every area of the, the country, there's going to be something called 
Northampton Mon or Birmingham Mon or this or that. <laughs> you, you have a look at it. But they've been remarkably supportive. That support is only going to be in place until we actually hit the ground running. We know what it's going to be like based on the the, uh, the pandemic. Parents will be supportive because they know it's not the school's fault, but then there will be things will come through. We're completely realistic about how that's going to happen. But parents, have, by and large, have been fairly supportive. What impact do you think this will have on your students and their education in the long run? One of the things that, to my mind, when we, we actually was talking to the DFE originally about this, is that we've got year 11 students coming through, uh, you know, final year of their education, coming into the school site uh, five hours a week. But it's not the same educational experience that we'd had when we asked them to, to see what, what is the plan for mitigating school results and also the, the qualifications for these young people who find themselves in this situation. And if anything else that we learned from the pandemic is how this affects mental health. Mm. And that's going to be the, one of the biggest things that we have to recognise. And putting in that pastoral support for families, it's not just children, it's families uh, around how we support them. But from my point of view, this is a week by week basis. I know what lessons and learning is going to look like for the next two, three weeks. We've braced ourselves for this temporary measure looking up until Christmas. Beyond that, I have no idea. Michael, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. Pleasure. That was Michael McCluskey. Deputy CEO of the Coast and Vale Learning Trust, which runs School Be School. And Peter Walker, The Guardian's deputy political editor. My thanks to both of them. To read more on this story and follow the latest developments, do head to theguardian.com. And finally, if you have been missing your pop culture podcast fix, good news. Shante Joseph returns to pop culture on Thursday the 14th of September. There'll be new episodes every week. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Eli Block and Sammy Kent. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back again tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs>